Good morning. We come today to the end of John chapter 3. And in these verses that we have before us, we're invited once again by God's word to make sure we've been paying attention to not only the words of Jesus and to the teachings of Jesus, but to the very person of Jesus, that we haven't missed him, or perhaps worse than that, that we haven't dismissed him. It's possible to miss Jesus. Maybe you're so used to something, you don't notice it anymore, or you've heard it a million times, you just don't notice it anymore. But it's also possible to dismiss Jesus, to hear him and to dismiss him. And if we do either of these two things, if we miss him or if we dismiss him, we do so at our own peril. So Jesus himself has been teaching us about himself in this book. And in this section, the end of John chapter three, the author of this book, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the disciple who knew Jesus well and closely reflects on Jesus so that we would not miss him or dismiss him. Before we turn to our text, let me just give us all a zoom out picture of where we're going to be going in the next few weeks with our sermons, in case you're interested. After today, when we finish John 3, we will put John aside for a couple of months. Next week is Christ the King Sunday, the last Sunday of the church year, last Sunday in the church calendar, and one of our former rectors, Martin Menz, will be here preaching and visiting with us. After that, we'll be into the season of Advent, and so for the first three Sundays of December, we will go through Isaiah chapter 1 and 2, and then we'll get to Christmas Eve Sunday, we'll have a couple Sundays of Christmas, Epiphany Sunday, and then in mid-January, back into John. So for the last time for now, I invite you to open your Bibles to the gospel according to John. Chapter 3, and we'll look at those closing verses of the chapter, verses 31 through 36. And let me exhort all of us this morning, believers, unbelievers, seekers, whoever you are, let me exhort us all not to miss Jesus. John, the author of this book highlights for us, we'll see this today in this text, he highlights for us two truths that Jesus himself taught about himself. And the first is this, we see right out of the gate here, Jesus is revealer and revelation. Jesus is the one who reveals God and he is God revealed. Jesus is the one who speaks truth. Jesus himself is truth. Don't miss this, John is saying. He's revealer and revelation. And we begin here in verse 31, speaking about Jesus. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. I wonder if you can tell me what my first point is going to be here. Jesus is above all. Crystal clear in our text, as revealer and as revelation, Jesus is above all, above all things, 
above all people, above all rulers and authorities, and above all other truth and other truth tellers. There are other people who speak truth in this world for sure, but the truth that they speak is subservient to the truth that Jesus speaks. His truth is above all. There are other truth tellers themselves in the world, good ones. Even the prophets themselves, good truth tellers. But even the truth tellers themselves are subservient to the ultimate truth teller himself. And John emphasizes this, unless we've, unless we've missed it or dismissed it, he emphasizes Jesus's absolute lordship in verse 31 with repetition. All of scripture is important, but we ought to always pay attention when there's repetition in scripture, and there is here. Twice in one verse, John says, he who comes from above, or at the end of the verse, he who comes from heaven is above all. So when truth himself speaks, we ought to pay attention. Verse 32 tells us why, because he bears witness to what he has seen and what he has heard. I've been enjoying a commentary on John written by a late Anglican theologian named Leon Morris. And reflecting on this verse, he wrote, the teaching of the master is not a hypothesis put forward as a basis for discussion. He teaches what he knows. This is made clear for us in verse 31. And then the first part of 32, Jesus is above all and he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. He teaches what he knows. A couple weeks ago, I made the mistake of turning on one of the presidential primary debates for about three minutes. <laughs> and in those three minutes, it seemed as though everyone on stage was talking at the same time, talking over one another, trying to talk louder than one another. It was total noise. Anybody else see any of this? Total noise. I'm sure you've noticed this yourselves in the culture or in politics or online or anywhere really, that all around us, there is no shortage of noise, constant noise. And if you're anything like me, you just long for it all to stop sometimes. And you long for one voice of truthfulness and authority just to speak above it all and make all the noise stop. Jesus is that voice. Jesus is above all. That longing in all of our hearts for truth and authority, we all have it. That longing will only be met in Jesus. It will never be met in a politician or in a professor or in a philosophy or in a preacher that longing, which is a need in all of us for absolute truth, will only be met in Jesus, will never be met in any other person. And verse 31 tells us why. It will never, it could never be met by any other person because he who is of the earth, that's a blanket category there for all humanity. It's not anything negative, it's just a fact. He or she, we, who are of the earth, we who are of the earth belong to the earth. 
and we speak in an earthly way. That's all we can ever do. That's all any book you purchase from the self-help section could ever do. It can only speak to you in an earthly way because the author belongs to the earth. But Jesus, the one who's from above, from heaven, we're told twice in verse 31, is above all. So your longing for truth, your longing for absolute truth will only and ever be met in Jesus. And so on that note, as the one who is above all, Jesus utters the very words of God. Every word that he says, every single word Jesus says is the authoritative word of God. Verse 34 makes this assertion, which is quite an assertion, to say that one historical figure speaks the words of God. It's an assertion, but then John backs it up with the proof. So assertion, for he whom God has sent, Jesus of Nazareth, the real man Jesus, he whom God has sent, utters the words of God. Here's the proof. For he gives the spirit without measure. So it's a reminder here that at Jesus' baptism, the spirit descended upon him and stayed And so this meant that Jesus wasn't like any other lowercase p prophet upon whom the Spirit would descend and then depart. Jesus is the capital P, full and final and forever prophet upon whom the Spirit descended and never left. So when Jesus speaks, he speaks not just for God. It's a difference. When Jesus speaks, he speaks as God. I was thinking just this morning of when I was in, I think I was a freshman in college, and someone asked me if I would sing at a wedding. There was a couple I didn't know. I think the mother of the bride heard me and asked me to sing, and I was just happy to make some money. And so I said, sure, why not? Sounds great, easy way to make a couple hundred bucks. And I made the mistake of not asking in advance what song I had agreed to sing. (laughs) So I said yes, and then they sent me the song, and it was by John Tesh, and it was a song, I'm not making this up, called I Love You Forever I Do. Real high uh, quality song here. And there was a line in the song that I had to sing, 19-year-old boy with my guitar at Wakefield Chapel. And here's the line that just, I didn't know what to do with myself. The line was this, baby, there's nothing I wouldn't do to make you my wife. (laughs) Who do I look at when I sing this line? Do I make eye contact with the bride while I sing this? (laughs) I was uttering the words of the husband. I was not the husband. 
Anybody can walk around and say, I'm God, I am the Messiah. Anybody can say the words. And there had been people. And part of what the author John was addressing to the church was that some of the people of God were falling for some of these false people, false prophets, lowercase, fake prophets. Jesus could utter the words, and he wasn't a fraud. He wasn't just saying the words. He is God. So you can pick up your Bible, and you can read the words of Jesus, and you can say, okay, the revealer is true. So the revelation is true. I hope we're all seeing by now that the deeper we go into John at every turn, every section of every chapter, every miracle he performs or person he talks to or new disciple he calls, this book is constantly calling us to grapple with the person of Jesus. And again, in case we've missed it, the author points out here again that we can receive this revelation or we can reject it. Verse 32, Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet here's some hyperbole here, lamenting the fallenness of our nature, yet no one receives his testimony. This underlines that, again, outside of Christ, apart from the saving grace of God in Christ, no one receives him. No dead person can make themselves come out of a grave. A dead person needs to be raised by someone who's stronger than death. No one receives his testimony. Apart from the saving initiative of God and Jesus Christ, no one makes the first move to God. God makes the first move. No one makes the first move. We reject God's grace apart from his grace. We have to be acted upon by the Holy Spirit Charles Wesley described this whole process of how revelation breaks through, how the light breaks through, how this process works of revelation. He wrote, long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. That's our, that's our state. We're in nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's how it works. That's our song. We're in a dungeon. There's no light in this dungeon. There's no light switch in this dungeon. There's no matches in this dungeon. There is utter darkness in our dungeon of nature's night. Jesus breaks through with his light. Our dungeon flames with his light and we receive him. And then verse 33 tells us what then happens. That when this happens, we receive his testimony because of his breakthrough. We set our seal to this. That God is true. Each believer, each, each believer in this room, uniquely you, when you receive the testimony of God and Jesus Christ, your faith 
authenticates that God is true. You become a living testimony, a living seal. John uses this illustration here of a seal. We don't use seals very often anymore to authenticate documents when we mail them. I don't even know if we mail documents much anymore around. So maybe a better illustration modern day would be you become your own 35-digit encrypted password authenticating that your faith is true. I don't know. With has to be nine letters and, and three numbers and, you know, your unique faith is a unique seal that God is true. On my kitchen island right now at home is a little card from my four-year-old Jacob that he wrote to Catherine, and it's the traced outline of his hand. And it simply says, I love you, and I'm thankful for you by Jacob to mommy. That's what it says. Now, that card doesn't make Catherine Jacob's mom. Catherine is Jacob's mom regardless of whether Jacob makes her a handprint card. But his unique card, his unique handprint authenticates a unique love from his unique heart. And that's a picture of what your faith is like. Remember that God's love is universal. Yes, praise God. But don't miss it. God's love for you is personal. Remember what Augustine said. God loves you as if you were the only one to love. I don't know what it is about our modern culture, maybe that some of us have a hard time receiving that kind of personal love, whatever wounds that might tap into. But praise God by grace, the love of God in Christ is more uniquely and intimately personal than you can ever imagine. And as grace for you sets a seal upon you uniquely, and then you respond, and your seal is placed upon him in faith. So now John admonishes us to not miss another central truth about Jesus here before we move on to chapter four, which is this. Jesus is savior and salvation. Salvation is done by him and is found in him. Salvation is achieved by him and received by belief in him. Look with me at verse 35. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Let's read that verse out loud together. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Praise God. Since this is true, it means that our life now and forever is secure in Christ. Your destiny is secure in Christ. But that also means, since that's true, that the destiny of every soul hinges on their response to Christ. We see here the supremacy of the Son. Jesus is supreme. He's been given all things from the Father. We've learned this already in this gospel. It's, 
It's, it's incredible, but it's true that Jesus, eternally existing with the Father, eternally loved by the Father, sent to redeem the world by the loving initiative of the Father, has been given by the Father all things, all life. So this is why we can say, as we do every Sunday as Anglicans in our Nicene Creed, Jesus is of one being with the Father. Jesus has been given the same authority as the Father. So by virtue of that supremacy, he is the only way to the Father. The Bible is undeniably precise about this in verse 36. We ought to feel the ground shake when we read this verse. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So because of the supremacy of the Son, Scripture teaches the exclusivity of the Son. That salvation is in and only in the Son. And so how do we receive this salvation? Verse 36 tells us, by believing in the Son. You aren't saved by your works. You are saved by believing in Jesus' work. You aren't made righteous by your accomplishments. You're made righteous by believing in Jesus' accomplishment. You aren't made just before God by your own efforts. You're made just before God by believing in Jesus' effort. You wanna be made just before God? You wanna be made righteous? You wanna be saved from the wrath of God? Then believe in the Son of God. That's all you have to do. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. The Bible makes it as simple and as wonderful as this. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, to the glory of God alone, alone. That's why we can sing, no condemnation now, I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed with righteousness divine. Bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. And then what's my song? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? This amazing love, this salvation is in the Son. We receive it by belief in the Son. Now, 
If that's true, which it is, then it must also be true that there is no salvation apart from the Son. If a person does not believe in the Son of God, verse 36 makes clear, that person shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And according to John, this isn't just unbelief. This is disobedience. We might think that the opposite of belief is unbelief. And if that was true, verse 36 would say it that way. Verse 36 doesn't say it that way. Let's look at that verse again. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The opposite of belief is not unbelief. The opposite of belief is disobedience. Because to believe in the Son is to obey the Son. He has said you must be born again. So to believe in him and to be born again in him is to obey him. Therefore, to not believe him is to disobey him. God has built an ark for you to save you from the flood. And the ark that God has built for you is the ark of Christ. And you have to come in through the door. And to reject the ark of Christ is to remain in the flood. Apart from salvation in Christ, there is only one thing left to be unleashed upon disobedience. John 3.36 teaches us, and it is the wrath of God. Now, there are some teachings from Jesus that we are not usually tempted to dismiss. There are some teachings from him that even non-Christians might not quibble with. Love your neighbor. Give to the needy. We're not usually tempted to sweep those under the rug or water those down. But this teaching, the wrath of God remaining on those who do not obey the Son, this is a teaching that most of us would be much more comfortable with dismissing. We cannot dismiss the wrath of God. Not only because scripture clearly teaches it, but also because if we dismiss God's wrath, then we also have to dismiss his salvation. Hear this again from Leon Morris. Abandoning the wrath of God mutilates the Bible and leaves us with a God who is not ready to act against moral evil. He goes on, if a man continues in unbelief and disobedience, he can look for nothing other than the persisting wrath of God. This is basic to our understanding of the gospel. Unless we are saved from real peril, there is no meaning in salvation. Up in my office, I have two images of Jesus displayed 
prominently side by side. I'd like to show you them. The first is this painting by Ed Nippers. No, it's hard to see. You can see it later if you'd like. It's titled, Christ Falls. This is Jesus carrying his cross, falling under the weight already of the cross, of the weight of sin and the weight already of the punishment upon that sin. And then Jesus goes to the cross and he bears upon himself the full, unfiltered wrath of God. The other image I keep right next to that is this one. It's a sculpture by Walter Slaughter, who was a member of this church for many years. It's Jesus risen from the dead. He's taken the wrath of God and he's buried it in the grave and he's victorious over it and he's alive. This together, this is the Jesus we proclaim. Christ crucified and Christ resurrected, both and. He was crucified to bear God's wrath and he was resurrected to redeem God's people. And if you dismiss the wrath, if you dismiss the cross, then you dismiss salvation. The whole thing falls apart. Jesus is victim and victor. Cross and resurrection. Wrath and redemption. This is salvation. This the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. Took the blame. Bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Don't miss this. Receive the revealer and his revelation. Believe in the Savior and in his salvation. Dismiss him at your peril. Set your heart upon him and live. Let's pray. God, you who said, let light shine out of darkness, would you please shine into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Help us to see him, to receive him, and to believe. We ask in his name. Amen.